celebrate uh, a victorious king as he entered into Jerusalem. This begins Holy Week, as it has been called in our Christian faith, Holy Week, because this is the week where not only do we have Palm Sunday, but just around the corner we have Resurrection Sunday. But before we can get to the resurrection, as you probably know, a lot happened that last week of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I wanted us today not so much to focus or get caught up on Palm Sunday like we have in the past, but I wanted us today to look at two gardens. Uh, The title of my message is A Tale of Two Gardens, kind of a play on uh, some of you that didn't fall asleep in literature class may remember the Charles Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, you, if you don't remember that, that's okay. Uh, you're not missing out on anything. <laughs> My English professor would beg to differ. But uh, Charles Dickens, 1859, A Tale of Two Cities is published. The two cities that it's about are London and Paris. The opening line I bet you're familiar with because it's used a lot in culture. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So you're probably a little familiar with that. But today's sermon is about a tale of two gardens, two very famous gardens in the Bible. And if you have your Bible this morning, would you open it to Genesis chapter 2? As you're opening there, since we kind of, you know, have some things to celebrate, I thought it's probably uh, beyond time that I show you a picture of my grandbabies. <laughs> so that is Sutter and Hudson. They are linked arms. They're not Siamese twins, but they are linked. They always like to hold hands. They always like to stare at one another. Uh, they are doing great. Hayden and Kelby are proud parents. And if you can't tell, I'm a proud pop. Uh, that's what uh, Hayden and Kelby think that those boys are going to call me. They can call me anything they want to. Amen. Uh, but they're doing great. I thought it was time that you see a picture of uh, Sutter and, and Hudson. Uh, they're just adorable. They're precious. Please continue to pray for Hayden and Kelby down at Emmanuel Baptist Church uh, as he's pastoring and, and listening to God's call on his life. But again, now let's draw our attention to Genesis chapter 2. If you have your place there in Genesis 2, I invite you to stand in reverence. Uh, If you're physically able, stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And this is what it says in God's Word. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 8. So the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He placed the man He had formed. The Lord God caused, he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havalah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedalam and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gahan, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris River, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in 
the Garden of Eden, to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Pretty clear, a huge warning there, and yet, as we all know probably, they did not follow that. Would you join me as we pray? Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, please be with us today as we study your word, as we learn about these two gardens, distinct, very different. God, I pray that today you would speak to our hearts, that that Holy Spirit would move to bring about conviction, to bring about uh, encouragement where it is needed, that God, there'd not be any distractions, that we would hear clearly from you, that we would not allow the things that so easily entangle or hinder us to disrupt what you're trying to do in our lives. There's two gardens. There's two choices. There's a, a road with a fork in it. What do we do? What do we choose today? Let it be a turning point in our life. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory, the praise, and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Two gardens. As you can tell in this garden that we've been introduced to in the Garden of Eden, they had everything they would want. Everything provided to them in this place called paradise. Everything imaginable that would be provided to them, their role was to kind of steward the land. They had everything they would want, and yet time after time we see that it's never enough for you and for me. Time after time God provides, my God shall supply all your needs, and what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. We don't wait. We don't listen. We don't obey. You can have everything you want. Just avoid that tree right there. Whoo, that's the tree that I want. You can have everything right in front of you, not have a need for anything, and yet seek that which you're not supposed to. Now look with me, if you would, in Genesis 3, one chapter over for the continuation of what happens here. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the serpent's attack is normally subtle. You don't even know you're being attacked. It's kind of, it causes you to question, did God really say you couldn't eat of this? Is that really what he meant? He's just trying to stop you from having fun. That's not what he meant. That's not what it's about. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, now you go from doubting, did God really say it? Is that interpretation? What did God really mean? Now watch how this attack happens. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful or pleasing to the eye, delightful to look at. Sin comes in pretty packages. Sin can sometimes look appealing 
But after you take that bite, you discover this is not what I bargained for. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I signed up for. But many times at that point, it's too late. You've already given in. So it was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her passive husband. Oh, I'm sorry, that was my commentary on that. Who was with her, and he ate it. So men, do not look at your wife in judgment and condemnation and elbow her. See what you did. See what you did. You were right there, big boy. You were standing idly by, just like you do today. Just like you do everywhere. Do you want me to help with them groceries? No, I got this. <laughs> so she ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So listen, the Garden of Eden shows us and teaches us that even when we have everything set before us and everything that we would ever need, it's never enough. Our desires oftentimes are insatiable. The Garden of Eden also, though, teaches us this, how selfish we can be. How selfish and self-centered we are you got everything you want, and you're going to go after that which you've been told. Don't, 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 don't. The Garden of Eden represents selfishness. It also teaches us what happens when we make decisions based on instant gratification. It don't work out too good. Oh, I, I want this because it's going to give me this instant gratification, and then what? Then what? You have to follow this till it's... It's end. You can't look at the instant gratification. You can't look at maybe the five minutes of pleasure or, or the, the, oh, this looks so good, I've got to have it. You can't focus on that. You've got to look at the long-term consequences. You've got to look at, you know, we're always concerned about taking this pill or that pill or that supplement or that supplement. What are the side effects? Because sometimes, how many of you have learned the hard way? You take one pill and it causes this problem. You've got to take another pill to take care of that problem. Then it causes that. It's a never-ending cycle, Right? And we learn that sometimes the side effects, I don't know if you ever pay attention to some of these commercials, but it could be for an allergy pill. And some of the side effects it could cause, I'm thinking, oh, I'd just rather have allergies. Hello, somebody. I'll just deal with the sneeze and I don't want that other stuff that it mentions. Lord have mercy. It's terrible. Instant gratification, though, seems so appealing. Oh, i got to have this. I want this. I need this. I deserve this. I'm entitled I deserve this. And so there are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden have everything they want, everything at their grasp, and yet it's never enough. The Garden of Eden also represents enlightenment. We live among people in a generation that want to be enlightened. They're not so big on religion, and I don't blame them. They're not so big maybe on church, but they want to be enlightened. They want to have this knowledge, and there's this, this move I've noticed uh, in the contemporary church movement, uh, of this idea of being enlightened and having this special knowledge. Did you notice the attack that the devil used? Did God really say you couldn't have this? And then he said, God knows if you have this, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God. Can I tell you, at the end of the day, enlightenment is all about you having this knowledge and being like this God, small g. And being in, and having this great, vast wisdom and knowledge. Let me just tell you this. 
You can, you can study, you can go to college, you can go to seminary, you can do all these things, you can read books. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what good will all that, all that smartness and intelligence, what will that gain you in the end? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you may have degrees. You may be one of the enlightened ones. You may go on a hilltop and sing Kumbaya with a bunch of weirdos. That will not save you in the end. The garden represents our will be done. Did you notice that? They had to have that instant gratification, that selfishness, that self-centeredness. My will, what I want, what I deserve, what I'm entitled to. And by the way, the garden of Eden also represents this, the start of the curse. Because hopefully you're familiar enough with the Bible to know that before this time, there was no curse. Before the fall, there was no consequences, weeds, thorns, and all of the things that we now struggle with, sin, sorrow, sickness, and death. Those things had not entered into the world. The Garden of Eden was a place of perfection, paradise at its best. And so before the fall, they, there's none of this bad stuff. But after the fall begins the curse, and the curse touched the ground the curse touched Adam, it touched Eve, and it's touched all of their descendants. The curse affects everyone. Their eyes were open, by the way. Here's the sad reality. They wanted their eyes to be open, you know. They wanted to be able to see some things. Their eyes were open, but they had no idea what they would be exposed to. Because now all of a sudden, shame, embarrassment, all, all of the guilt and the stuff that comes with sin... It now weighed so heavily on them that when they heard God, now think about this, God would come and meet with them in the cool of the day. They would have that walk with God and they heard Him coming. And for the first time ever, they hid from Him. Isn't that sad? Maybe when you were young, you'd been bad at school or naughty at home. <laughs> When you were mad and mama was coming home and she, you know, she had got that call from the school, or maybe in your case it was dad, and, and you heard that car pulling in, maybe you thought you could hide. Maybe you thought, maybe you thought can I fit under my bed? Maybe if I look busy, like I'm doing chores and homework. Is that what they do? I'm studying for major tests tomorrow. You're in kindergarten. What are you doing? <laughs> but you thought you could hide, right? And sometimes you got away with it. You remember that? You could get away with it occasionally. You didn't get caught. And then one day, it all came crashing down. I don't know what was worse. The fear that you were about to get caught, and they would know, and you'd be held accountable, and you'd get the whooping. And you just anticipated. You knew that shoe was going to drop. You knew they'd eventually find out. But then a day went by, and they didn't find out. A couple of days went by. And then, oh, they found out. So imagine being Adam and Eve. You had never hid from God. You liked meeting with God. You didn't know any different. It was like, wow, God's meeting with us. Oh, this is another day. But on this day, you hide. On this day, now, you've been naked the whole time. Naked. It's like it was naked. You've been naked the whole time, but you weren't embarrassed. You weren't in shame about it. And now you've tried to, to, to develop the, these fig leaves to cover the shame, to cover the guilt. 
It had been there the whole time, the nakedness. But now all of a sudden it's a bad thing. Now all of a sudden there's the shame factor that comes in. So you're not only hiding from God, you're hiding from one another. Listen to me. That is a miserable way to live. Trying to cover up, trying to hide. Jesus wants you to be free from that. He wants you to be set free from that. He doesn't want you covered with guilt and shame. He's the one. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my... A fig leaf can't cover that up. The only thing that can wash away your sin is the blood of Jesus. So the Garden of Eden represents sin, selfishness, my will be done, my way. But now let's talk about another garden. So 4,000 years after the fall, 4,000 years after the fall, the Garden of Gethsemane became the Garden of Agony and the Garden of Decision. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 beginning around verse 36. The Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then He said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with Me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping at such a pivotal moment in his ministry. He asked Peter, So, couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. Some of you struggle with that same affliction. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. The Garden of Gethsemane. A tale of two gardens, the Garden of Eden where the curse started and the Garden of Gethsemane where the curse is brought to an end. So the Garden of Gethsemane represents sacrifice. We have some pictures. I've uh, been to Israel. How many times have I been to Israel, Marlene? A bunch. Uh, I've been to Israel just a couple of times. And uh, Marlene makes fun of me because she's jealous. She wants to go. Uh, But at any rate, I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane a few times. And uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they have these huge olive trees. Huge. Massive. And some of them are about 4,000 years old, which would take it before the time of Jesus. 
Uh, people that study trees and plants, horticulture, they can tell us the age of these, and there's a, there's a few there that date back. So you're looking at some of my uh, pictures uh, from my trips to, to Israel. These trees, though, look like they're in anguish because they're twisted. The older they are, the more twisted and more contorted they can be. Uh, they're not necessarily the prettiest trees, but when you know the story behind them, because you see in there in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane where there are olive trees, those trees make what you and I like olive oil. And that olive oil, specifically from that region, the Mediterranean, uh, has the best olive oil ever. And so those olives that uh, grow on these olive trees that, again, some of those trees are uh, date back before the time of Jesus. When you're walking in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know that Jesus prayed in that garden. There's a lot of places where they speculate and they think, okay, this is where that happened, this is where that happened. The Garden of Gethsemane, because of the complete detail of description that it gives us in the Gospels, you know that that is the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the other thing I like about it is the Garden of Gethsemane doesn't have a church built on top of it. There is a church called the Church of All Nations, but it's actually to the side. I don't like when they ruin a place and they stick this big old church in the middle of it and say, okay, underneath this church at one time is where such and such happened. I want to go to the place. I want to go to a church that's been built on top of that. But anyway, some of these pictures that you're seeing are from the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, I call the Garden of Decision because Jesus goes to this garden knowing what he faces, knowing that his arrest is imminent, knowing what is about to happen is he's going to be arrested, taken into custody, and then he's going to suffer an excruciating, humiliating death on your behalf and on my behalf. He who knew no sin is going to take on our sin and become our sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. The fall of man and the Garden of Eden brought the beginning of curse. Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane sets up the breaking of the curse and us being set free. Jesus prayed passionately in this garden. He prayed to the point that Luke, the writer of Luke, who, by the way, was a medical doctor, so I think this is me. Uh, Luke, unlike Matthew, was not a disciple. After, after Jesus, Luke was a medical-trained doctor who then goes and interviews people that walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, knew Jesus. And so his account of the Garden of Gethsemane is a little different. And I want to point out a couple of things. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. Luke 22 and verse 44. A medical doctor, Luke, Dr. Luke, points out something a little different, a small detail you might say, but I think it's very uh, impactful to the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, beginning at verse 44. Be, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, passionately, Desperately, whatever your translation may say there. So being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, it's amazing to me how oftentimes the songs that Marlene picks go right along with my message, and she did not know in advance of today of what I was going to be preaching on. If anything, she would have guessed Palm Sunday. But the song that we sang, for me, it was in the garden. 
But you, you know, the, the writer of that hymn, as he reflected on who Jesus is, he said, I stand amazed in the presence. So he reflects back on the ministry, the life of Jesus. And he says, from a personal anecdote, for me it was in the garden. Think about that verse. The garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed fervently, where he it was in anguish and agony, this garden of decision where he prays to the point that the capillaries in his face burst. This is a known medical condition. And Dr. Luke would have been familiar with this. Dr. Luke would have known that Jesus in this point of agony as he's facing Calvary, as he knows he's going to be arrested in this garden, as he knows they're coming for him, as he knows his betrayer, his so-called friend Judas, is on his way to kiss him. Because that was the sign to the soldiers. The one I kiss is the Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one arrest him. Betrayed by a kiss, he knows in that garden what's going to happen. He's going to be taken into custody. He's going to go through the motions and the mockery of a trial. He was not given due process. He was not given probable cause. No, they took him in on a trumped up charge. Hello, somebody. They took him in out of aggression. They took him in and, and put him through this whole mockery. And what did they accuse him of? Of all things, blasphemy. Make him face a criminal's death, crucified between two hardened criminal thieves. You put him through that. He knows because he's Jesus, the Son of God. He knows what's going to happen. When he's praying in that garden, he knows what's about to take place. But he's willing to do it. Because do you notice that as opposed to the Garden of Eden where it's my will, what I want, what I need, what I deserve. But instead in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not my will but yours be done. Not what I want. I, I mean, can you imagine the anguish and the burden that's on him to know that he who knew no sin is now taking on your sin, becoming your sacrifice so that you could be set free, so that you wouldn't walk around burdened, so that you wouldn't have this tremendous load upon your shoulders. It's the end of the curse, the beginning of the curse in the Garden of Eden, but the end of the curse in the Garden of Gethsemane. That blood dripping down from his face from broken capillaries shows the anguish that this man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, 100% man, 100% God, it shows you that in this text to the point that he is in so much pain that these capillaries burst. It shows you his humanity. He prayed so passionately. I've led the devotionals there in the Garden of Gethsemane many times, and I'm just going to tell you of all the places that we go to in Israel, this is one of the most powerful. Because you know this is where it is. There's no, there's no debate. Nobody's like, no, it's over here. Please come see me. It's here. It's here. Here's where he was. No, it's none of that. They know it's this place right here. It's a pivotal moment. It's a turning point. This garden reversed the curse. Today is your turning point. Today you can choose selfishness. You can have it your way. You can choose your way. Or you can choose God's will for your life. Jesus gave us a great example in the Garden of Gethsemane. He gave us the example to choose obedience over convenience. And yet honestly, church... 
We're in the same condition that the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are asleep. Jesus, at a pivotal moment, is praying to the point that blood is dripping. And He goes and checks on the disciples and they're... And for 2,000 years, that's been the condition of the church. Asleep. Wake up. There's this woke movement going on in society today. I don't want you to join that movement, but I want you to be awakened. Let's pray.